Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hello, and welcome back to Your Family Dog. I'm Julie Fudge-Smith, and I'm here with the ever-effervescent Tina Spring. (laughs) I don't know what (laughs) that is. Well, I should say the ever caffeinated as am I. I don't think <laughs> Tina and I function well with, without the uh, the artificial effervescence that is caffeine. We were talking before we started recording because Tina and I are such advanced planners when it comes to what we're going to record about. And we were talking about actually behavior issues that weren't in dogs but we're in people. And of course, for both Tina and I, it always comes back to dogs. And one of the things we were talking about is just where do you start when you see a behavior problem? And oftentimes what we do is we see dogs that have a multiple issues, shall we say. Now, what we're going to talk about today are things that we've talked about a lot before. We've talked about trigger stacking. And we've talked about the need for sleep and the need for exercise and the need for good nutrition. And all these things have been addressed in a wide variety of our podcast. But we've never pulled together and talked about a case that has multiple levels. Where do we start? How do we begin to address behavior issues in a dog? And what are the kinds of things that we're looking to do And one of the things that we're going to talk about is where do we start? What's one thing that we can do to start the process of changing this dog's behavior to something that's a little bit more acceptable for him and for us? So with that, Tina is now going to present our case. So here you go, Tina. Okay. We made up a mythical dog that is kind of a combination of the behavior cases that Typically, Julie and I see, we get calls about their kind of, this is kind of a typical presentation. So owner reaches out and says, we just got a two-year-old recently neutered male dog. He's a lab cross from, you know, a rescue or a shelter or animal control. Um, We're having problems that he's jumping up. He's mouthing when he gets excited or during play. He's kind of a maniac on a leash. He doesn't really come when called. He seems kind of hypervigilant about things going on around and in the house. Doesn't really settle down. He's kind of shy with strangers, but he's fine at the dog park with the other dogs. And so we decided that this dog's name was going to be Skillet because it makes me laugh. It's one of the best names I've ever heard of for a Black Lab or a Black Lab cross. So I named him Skillet. So you can blame me for that. So when you hear this description of the dog, when, when we're looking through this lens of a behavior consult, my brain immediately points to just one or two things that if we unraveled those twinkle lights and, and supported Skillet and his family differently, they'd probably get a really different outcome. So when, when you're hearing this list, what immediately pops to your mind? Sleep. That the dog probably needs more sleep. What I have found is that when dogs are hyper vigilant or hyperactive or manic, it usually means that it's like a toddler who needs a nap, right? They're trying really hard to keep themselves going, so they tend to escalate into undesirable behavior, especially with a new dog coming into a new home. It's all new for him, and it's all difficult for him. And I remember when our Venezuelan exchange student came to visit us, Victor, and his English was really good. But for the first two weeks, Victor needed, he was exhausted when he came home from school and needed a nap. He needed a lot more sleep the first two to four weeks he was here because the newness and the language and everything were so difficult in some ways to process. He needed a lot more sleep in order to be able to process the next day. So I see the same thing with this dog. He's new to this family. He's newly neutered. He's trying to figure out his environment. There's people coming and going that he doesn't know. And so he's, and they're probably not arranging for him to get enough sleep. So the first thing I would address with him would be, let's get him some naps. We need to teach him how to settle. Right. This is an adolescent dog. So his his fear of missing out, his FOMO game is probably pretty strong. And 
coming out of a, a sheltering environment or a rescue environment, we have to remember that's a lot of stress hormones that are being released at each big change. Yes. And shelters are not exactly the kind of environment that's conducive for sleep. So he's used to running on extra. Right. I, I agree. And then adolescent dogs really don't self-regulate all that well, kind of the same way that kids don't self-regulate very well. And we've all seen the cascade of the tired child into the angry, out of their mind, spectacularly unpleasant, uncomfortable child. Like that's a cascade that happens pretty quickly when that's happened chronically, which often for adolescent dogs, it has, uh, I think it takes much longer to dig out of that hole than most people recognize. I also see lots of families who got a new dog and they know the dog's home and he's going to be loved and accepted. They want to show him off to the world. And the dog is often, I think, going, what planet did I just land on? Like, it's a little bit like an alien abduction and a kidnapping. And he doesn't have, he may not have his feet under himself yet, right? He may not know what's expected of him. He might not even know the skillet's his name. That's right. Well, the other thing I was going to say is that you know that he's there for the long haul. You love him. He's there. We're going to get through this. But how is Skillet supposed to know this, especially if Skillet has been rehomed two or three times? If this is his second or third home, he's going to have a lot more worry and a lot more distrust that this is something that I can ease into and really know that it's going to be mine. Um, that's a bit of anthropomorphizing there, but I think that we have found the more times a dog gets rehomed, the more difficult the rehoming becomes and the more behavior issues may be cropping up because of the anxiety and fear that this dog has that I don't know what's going on. Well, and just all the rule changes, right? Think about how disoriented you are when the grocery store like reorganizes everything, right? We're all mad for weeks until we figure out the new layout. So I think often for our dogs, like families don't think about kind of orienting the dog to what the rules are and that like my kitchen and your kitchen are probably laid out and things are stored with somewhat the same rules, but not the same rules. The same thing happens to our dogs. So, you know, when we bring any animal in, the rules in each household are really different. I mean, some rules are probably the same, but the rules are different in each household. So it takes a dog a variable amount of time to sort that out. Right. And sometimes the dog is like, well, I like the rules from the last house better. <laughs> so I look at sleep. I would agree. That's like, that's a biggie. I would also look at nutrition because likely this dog has had some insults over the process. And I would look at medical. Just a really good once over from a vet is hugely helpful in making sure we don't have a cracked tooth. We, we don't have you know, Lyme's disease that we haven't noticed before, right? Like we can just check that stuff out. And then I recommend starting with what the dog says is the first step, which can be really hard for families. Cause we're like, no, I want to be able to take him for a walk around the block. And I'm like, right, but skillet might not be ready for that yet. Right. So if, for example, trying to put the leash on skillet results in trying to wrestle a little bit of a furry and happy alligator, then we kind of have to start with leashing and unleashing and handling the body and the collar and getting the dog less overwhelmed and excited and aroused or scared of all that handling, right? So often people are like, well, he's awful on a walk. And I say, what happens when you pick up his leash? And the dog immediately, like his marbles are embedded in the walls you don't have a leash walking problem yet. <laughs> you you have a dog who sequenced in some understanding that from somewhere that is different than what the family ideally wants the dog to understand. The good news is with classical conditioning, we can change those associations crazy quickly once we accept that the dog sets the starting point and the pace, not us. We are literally in a supportive role in the passenger seat. The dog is in the driver's seat. And for people our ages, that can be a bitter pill to swallow because Julie and I are both of an age where we were raised where 
you told dogs what to do and good dogs did those things and bad dogs didn't do those things and you punished them until they did kind of like how we were with kids back in the day and now we've learned better that 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 there are much better kinder options for that but it does take a little bit of a a twist of the kaleidoscope because the human often wants just what the human wants i want to be able to go for a walk and i'm like you can go for a walk just leave skill at home he's not ready yet Right. I think you're right. My next thing was going to be nutrition. And then I was also going to say medical, because I think it's really important to understand where's your ground zero? Where are you coming in ground zero? Because if you don't understand your dog's medical issues, you don't understand where his nutrition is at, you don't understand where his sleep issues are at, you got to establish ground zero, because that's where we have to start. And that's where your dog is going to start telling you, this is my ground zero. This is where we need to start. And I always tell people when they get a new dog and or they have see a dramatic behavior change in their dog, first thing is get a vet's eyes on your dog. Because if there's an underlying organic cause to all this, then we need to see what's going on. And that includes things like do a baseline blood panel so you know exactly what his blood levels, what his pancreatic enzymes are like, what his kidneys like, you know. I mean, just get a good baseline of your blood so that you have something to go back to should something happen. The other thing is, is make sure you get a stool sample in a urinalysis done because if he maybe have a hidden parasite of some kind in the stool, which can cause all kinds of problems. And if it's a urinalysis, you know, if there's a UTI, that can be painful. So it's really important to get that ground zero on medical stuff. And it's not something that vets regularly check, right? Vets very rarely just run a random urinalysis. That's not a normal part of a vet exam. So when we get that new dog, right, whatever was done by the rescue or the shelter, they did vaccines. They probably did a heartworm test. They might have run a CBC, hopefully, before they neutered. But we want to dig a little bit deeper. Right. Well, the other thing I was going to say, too, is, is you, you were right about the ground. You know, where is the dog saying this is our starting point? So with that, one of the things I also recommend is you need to understand that the changes we're going to make, like getting him to sleep more and turning around his nutrition. These are all things that we can start, but are going to take a time to get to optimum point. So when I'm working with people and they have a dog who needs more sleep, first thing we do is let's figure out exactly how much sleep skill it's getting. You know, well, he naps during the day. Well, does he nap at your feet and he's up every time you go to the bathroom? That's not exactly, you know, a good nap for him. So let's get a register of exactly how much sleep he's getting. Let's establish a sleep place for him that's his happy place. And let's see if we can increase his sleep time by, you know, let's start with an hour a day, see how he does. And then maybe we can get to two hours. So I think you have to realize a lot of this are incremental changes. Your dog is not necessarily going to go from sleeping overnight and a quick nap in the day to sleeping overnight and eight hours of sleep during the day. You have to work him up to that as well. And the same thing with nutrition. We want to make sure that we he's got good nutrition and that we're feeding him a, you know wholesome food. But you're going to add things in in a systematic fashion so that you don't totally disrupt his system. Or if it does disrupt his system, you know what it is that disrupted his system. So remember that these things do take a little bit of time. And Tina, I love the fact that you're saying that going on a walk is step 10. We have to get through step one, which is can we even get the leash on this dog? I think you'll find that once you start introducing positive reinforcement training for all kinds of things, he's going to be much more receptive. So he begins to understand, oh, wait a minute. If I stand here patiently while she puts my leash on, liver happens. Oh, that's pretty cool. I can stand here patiently. And then that's the beginning. That's one of the first steps. So I think that you also have to consider that what we're going to look at, at least when I look at behavior cases, look at the husbandry issues, which we've talked about. I also look at behavior modification. How is it that I can help to change his behavior so that these things that uh, to counter condition and desensitize him to things that are triggers for him. But the other thing I was going to say that I start with is sort of a three-prong approach with behavior cases. The third prong is we start doing some obedience training. It can be that we just, we practice our sit, we practice our down, maybe we practice spin, we throw in a few tricks. So that as the dog begins to become more comfortable with his environment and you ask him to do something, he's like, I know how to do that. So we're going to boost the dog's confidence through obedience training. 
We're going to change things through behavior modification and positive reinforcement there. And we're going to take a look at husbandry issues. Right. So part of it is, I think there's a little bit of thinking in terms of what does this dog need to know to be successful in our home? I'm much more interested in, does the dog know how to navigate the environment successfully and do the things we do all the time, leashing and unleashing, going potty outside, don't stick your face in the trash can, having the dog know what they're supposed to do during dinner time and where they're supposed to rest. And while it's not super sexy, being able to help a dog learn how to do those things then allows you to teach those obedience skills that you want. So for example, if I have a dog who's hypervigilant looking out the windows all the time, I'm going to actually tether that dog in the house so they start giving up that behavior. Because I don't want that brain being constantly overstimulated and then end up with barking and launching at the windows and and all the silliness, right? I want them to go, no, here in the house, unless it's an actual emergency, we're just not going to worry about all that stuff. And getting the dog understanding what the routine of our life is and how to fit into that routine so that there's a lot of joy and laughter and sunshine And the dog knows what to do instead of waiting for the dog to just kind of somehow sort it out on their own. So it's funny, Gina, the trainer who handles our board and trains is really funny because we've found that as we're teaching people like how to teach a settlement exercise while you're making lunch, we've had to literally say to people, now it's going to look like we're making lunch. We're not making lunch. We're just going through the steps of making lunch, but we're not actually doing that That's going to happen after we've done this little training session, the dog gets put away for a nap, and then we're going to make lunch, right? Because I've not seen it be terribly effective to train the dog while you're doing life. That's a separate thing, right? So I teach the dog, like, I want you on the settle mat. That's where I want you to lie down while I'm in the kitchen. What a good dog you are. Here you go. When the dog has that skill nailed down, then the dog will be out when I'm cooking. But in the meantime, like I'm spending a bunch of time fake cooking, fake doing kitchen stuff and reinforcing the dog. Cause what I'm actually doing is training the dog. I'm not making lunch, right? It takes a little bit of skill to be able to then actually make a sandwich while the dog lays on their bed. Right. So in terms of skillet, what specifically would we do to start changing skillet around. So one of the things I suggested is sleep. So one of the things I would do is, is first of all, let's find out where is it that you want skillet to sleep. Okay, let's find a nice comfy spot and create a place, an environment that makes him happy and willing to settle and go to sleep. I had one client whose dog she had up in her office, her puppy, and she had like a playpen up there, but she was getting phone calls and she was talking and she was going in and out to get coffee and the dog would never settle down to take a nap. So she had a spare bedroom and what we did was we set up a spot for him in the spare bedroom so that we could close the curtain so it was nice and dark. We put in a DAP diffuser in there. We uh, set up an an X-Pen for him with a bed and um, some toys, and through a dog's ear music. And so when she needed him to sleep, she'd put him in there with a nice stuffed Kong, he'd settle down, and boom, he was out for a couple of hours. And then when he woke up, he was a lot more manageable than he was for just those five or ten minute snippets of sleep that he got when he was in her office. So it's okay to set up an environment where your dog is away from you to sleep, but it has to be an environment in which he is happy. If your dog has separation anxiety, that's a whole other thing. But skillet is not one that we said had separation anxiety. So you need to start by setting up a place where skillet's happy. And you don't just dump him in there for a few hours. You're going to put him in there a few minutes while he finishes Kong, let him out. You're going to slowly increase the amount of time that he spends in there, falls asleep, has a good, good nap. So then what would you do with nutrition? Or do you have another suggestion on sleep, Tina? So I would start also just creating a log, like a behavior log, like when is the dog eliminating, where, account, same with sleep. When did the dog go down for a nap? When did he wake up? Right. I want to gather data 
And I also want to do a little bit of testing. What does the dog think the rules are, right? Like what does the dog know and what does the dog not know? So um, we had a really funny case in class the other day that a family was getting frustrated that their down cue, the dog was digging at their hand with their foot. And I said, well, have you taught him paw? And she said, yes. And I'm like, show me the cue for paw. And it is identical to the cue for down. And I said, okay, so we, I'm like, okay, now show me your cue for down. It's exactly the same as the cue for paw, right? And I watched it wash over her face like, oh, oh, I could see how that, how that, <laughs> that confused Hallie. So I said, well, this is easy. We'll just create a new cue for lying down that's really different than the cue you have for paw. So if the dog's decided that that means paw, we're just going to make that the paw cue, but we're going to change our down cue. And so that's what we did. And, and again, like dogs are really, really smart. They're really smart and they like to sort things out. So often a little bit of confusion, we can sort out pretty quickly if we like literally ask the dog, well, what, what, what do you think a leash means, right? So if a leash means we're all going to fight and wrestle to get the leash attached to the collar, and then we're going to blast out the door like lunatics, and then we're going to drag the human around the block, barking and lunging at everything we meet, well, not so much. That's not really what the human had in mind. <laughs> so, so we just begin where we are. So I start with trying to get a family to kind of curb their enthusiasm a little bit for this new dog. Like he doesn't need to meet every new person, doesn't need to go for a walk around the block, right? Yes, he needs exercise, but if going for a walk around the block is awful, please don't keep rehearsing that. Like let's start with some other things. And then I give them some exercises to do to start to detangle those twinkle lights. So the dog isn't over threshold. Because a lot of times the wrestle match starts the whole, like trying to put the leash on with three kids running around asking you questions and they can't find their shoes. And now this one's shoe is untied. And the dog thinks that attaching a leash means mouth my mom, because I'm overstimulated by all this grabbing and noise, that might be where we're starting. Right. Well, one of the things I was going to say, too, is that we we said that um, Skillet is a bit shy with strangers. So one of the things that I found that people tend to do is they think, oh, well, then he just needs to meet more of them. Or, you know, I was I had a pet sitting client one time that I was at her house and she was in her, we were doing the intake interview. And she had two small dogs, one of which came over and said hi to me. The other one sat on the other side of the table just looking at me. And I looked at it and I'm just like, okay, fine. You'll come over and talk to me when you're ready. And she said, and this one is, and I don't remember the dog's name, so we'll just call him Buffalo Bill, which is an odd name for a Shih Tzu. But anyway, this is Bill. And she says, here. And she picks Bill up and she plunks him into my lap, right? Bill was terrified. I was like hands off, like, I'm so sorry, Bill. And he's just like, this is exactly what I don't need. And so I was really quiet and I just sort of laid, sat back and let him jump off my lap. But when it came time to pet sit him, when I came in and let him out of his crate, he took one look at me and dove under the sofa. So I really learned a lesson there if I hadn't known it before. And that is, I mean, this is a rule that you cannot violate. Our dogs don't get a whole lot of say in life as to what happens to them. They don't get to choose where they live or what they eat or the toys they get or the kind of bed they have. But the one thing they really ought to be able to have a choice on is who they meet and for how long. And so what I would say, if your dog is shy with strangers, then let him choose. Let Skillet choose if he wants to meet that stranger or not. And if he doesn't, then you have my permission just as somebody's approaching the dog, say, I'm sorry, you have to ask the dog. So put your hand down if he comes over. Great. If he doesn't, well, I'm sorry. Apparently, we're just not feeling social today, maybe another time. But you have every right to protect your dog from being overwhelmed by strangers who want to meet him and he doesn't want to meet. You'll know if he wants to meet somebody because he will go up to them. If he doesn't go up to him, don't allow them to come up to him. Well, and, and honestly, I see a lot of fearful dogs who will close the distance because they're just trying to get it over with, right? They've been run into the situation so many times that they go in and then yell at the person because you're too close and it's scary. So I just tell people, 
if you think about your day, you walk through the grocery store, you walk through the halls of the school, you walk through the office, you don't touch many people during the day. Right. Or, or the average week. Like I just simply, I touch the people that intimately in my life, my partner, my good friends, some of my staff, like that we're super close, but I don't think I've ever touched my neighbors ever physically. Right. That doesn't mean that I don't buy their kids bubble soap and, and sidewalk chalk. It doesn't mean that I don't take an Easter basket over or take them candy at at Christmas, but we're not hugging. We don't really touch all that much. And honestly, our dogs probably are happier with less touching too. Now there are the exceptions, right? Marco, once you're in, like once you're one of his people, he is like all the cuddles all the time. Like he's a little bit like a furry leech. Well, Zuzu's the same way. I tell people we don't walk through Granville. We go through a lean through Granville because every person she sees, she has to go up and lean into and say, hi, yeah, I guess you're my new best friend. And, and she, she just leans her way through Granville. Clemmy's like, we're walking. We're walking. Tail's wagging. I'm smelling. Yeah. Hi. Don't pet me. Right. It's often interesting to me what people's expectations are. Cause I think the ask for a dog of, can you walk somewhere and ignore other dogs, like notice them, but don't lose your marbles about them and notice people, but don't lose your marbles about them either on the plus side of like hyper social, like Zuzu or on more the side of like a dog that's fearful or concerned, right? I want my dog to try to just get to a place of neutral in the environment. They can take it in. They can go for the walk, but they're not straining to say hello to anyone. They're also not trying to run away. Yeah. That's kind of the sweet spot from my perspective. Right. In general, it's like that. If, if we're walking through Granville and, you know, people will say, oh, can I say hi? And then that's fine with me. But it's it's like, okay, girls, look at me. Come on. Oh, you looked at me. Great. Have a treat. We're going to move right through here. And when we see another dog, I see another dog coming that I see is kind of hypervigilant. Dogs are focused on me. It's like, okay, girls. Yes. Yeah. I see that cute little beagle over there too, but you're going to look at me instead. So I think you're absolutely right. Having that neutral way of walking through the world. But that is a long, long way down the road from where Skillet is. Right. So we talk about like, okay, let's first get Skillet bonded to the family and let's get to know who Skillet is and what he knows and what he doesn't know, what he likes and what he isn't comfortable with. Then I begin the, how are we going to move through the environment neutrally as a stationary exercise? I am not telling the dog to sit her down. I am literally playing the park and pay game. And then lots of look at that. Can you look at that over there? That's a Leslie McDivitt control unleashed exercise that gets a dog to check out things in the environment and then offer eventually checking back in with you. And it's a really great way to teach a dog how to how to regulate a little bit and to go, oh, yeah, that's over there. But it doesn't it doesn't matter to me. Right. So it's kind of like you and I are at the grocery store. A child is melting down in, you know, the frosted sugar bomb section, y you and I look at that and go, yep, not my circus. And we keep moving, right? We do check it because if something awful is happening, if there's an emergency, we want to, we want to help. But once we assess like, oh yeah, that's not an emergency. That's just a child who's overtired in the grocery store, who's quarreling with his mother. We, we just keep moving and like say a little, well, I say a little prayer for her, you know, because I remember those days. I look at her and I'll just say, oh, I've been there. You're doing great. <laughs> You're doing just fine. So I try to give the mom or dad, but it's usually the mom, you know, a little bit of reassurance like, hey, I'm not judging you. I've been there, you know, and I, I get it. So, yeah, I agree completely. The thing that I also try to do is when I'm talking to an owner and they're listing off to me all these things that they don't like that the dog does right? And it's like, I agree. I don't want my dog to do that either. So what I also try to do is ask them, because we need to have goals, what is it you want him to do instead? How is it you would like him to behave? And we'll see if we can get there, right? So we have a list of problems, but we also have sort of the list of solutions, where it is we want to be. And so 
one of the things I, I will say is that it's like, okay, those are objectives that we're going to re- that we're going to strive for. We may or may not get to that ultimate place, but we can work in that direction. So I think that one of the beauties of positive reinforcement training is it's not all about stopping bad behavior. Instead, it's all about encouraging and rewarding steps in the right direction. It's steps towards the behavior that we want to see or the dog that we want Skillet to become. And so that's, I think, is really important is you also have to, when I'm assessing things and saying, okay, these are the problems that I see. You're telling me this symptom. This is what I think the underlying problem is. This is where I think the step in the right solution to get us to where you want to be. I think it's really important to give them hope. So I'll give you a really good example. So we had two families who signed up for group classes last week, one with like an 18-month-old Jack Parsons that was new, to, relatively new to them. I think they've had him six months. The other one was like a nine-month-old Parsons Bull Terrier Cross puppy, right? That one's owned by a college student. Both of them, when they signed up for the group class, when they listed their their goals, it was like, well, I really want my dog to be less reactive on a leash. That was a big old red flag that we we reached out to those customers and said, hey, we'd like to do a private lesson with you first so that one, we can assess whether or not a group class is the right way to start with this dog, but also to give you some tools between now and when that group class starts that we stop the rehearsals that aren't working very well. You guys are great. I kind of wish I lived in Georgia. Thanks. I mean, you're welcome to come on down. So we used, again, we, we chatted a little bit about what we were observing with the dogs. Then we taught each of the families separately. Again, Leslie McDivitt control unleashed exercises. We did look at that. And then we did Super Bowls. Those are really great exercises for dogs that are low reactive on leash. We got a report the next morning from the woman with the Parsons that their morning walk had been revolutionized. That her little dog has gone from jumping and lunging and barking at other dogs to like just checking in with her and going, do you see there's a dog over there that that could be a problem? We might, I might need more space. Already had revolutionized their walks, right? The barking and the lunging and all that had gone away. So a huge change with just one, two quick little exercises that are super easy to to do. So sometimes it's not even going to take a long time to make a change. It's just beginning where the dog says is the beginning. Because that can be a sticky piece of it. Like if if Julie and I were having a disagreement and I thought Julie was mad because I rolled my eyes at her, but what Julie was really mad about was that I made some comment the last time we were on the call, then what I'm trying to fix and what Julie's trying to get sorted out are two separate things. And likely I was rolling my eyes about something that happened that may have even been germane to what I upset you about, you know, two calls ago or whatever. So sorting out where do we begin, literally untangling the twinkle lights for our dog or for a family member or in a disagreement in any relationship, a miscommunication, often that root thing is really, really amenable to change really quickly once you figure out what it is, right? Right. Right. And that's why I was saying that sometimes it takes a long time to get to a particular goal, especially if you have, like, I want to be able to walk my dog through downtown Granville off-leash. Well, that's a pretty significant goal from my dog is a maniac on the leash to I want to be able to walk. That's going to take some time. But you're right. Sometimes it's just finding out what that root problem is. Oh, that's what it is. Okay, let's try this. And sometimes there's some really, really great. And those are always the fun cases is when you can make a really significant difference in a very short period of time. I've had some of those too, and it's always very rewarding. And it's kind of what sustains you for those cases where things don't seem to be going as well. It doesn't seem to matter what we do, but things are falling apart. One thing I wanted to say, though, is you mentioned red flags. And I wanted to say that one of the things about Skillet that other people might not see as a red flag, but I think you and I both do, is the he's fine at the dog park. 
anytime somebody uses the word fine with me, a red flag goes out on the field. I put a little star next to that. So language matters. Our vernacular matters. So if I saw you out in public and said, how are you? And you said, I'm fine. My response would be, oh my goodness, are you okay? Like what's going on? Right. Because fine's not good. Fine is usually, could you please hand me some chocolate? Right. Yes. And if I were a drinking woman or a shot of tequila, but <laughs> right. The, the other day, someone asked me how I was and there was like a really, really long pregnant pause. And then I was like, I'm here. Right. Like it is today. That's that's where we are. Right? One of those days where I woke up on the right side of the dirt. And that's, that's all right. I can say. Like, so it was funny because the person knows me pretty well and was like, whoa, like that's not like you. And I'm like, right, I am right now reframing in my brain the current state of stuff and making a list of what to be gracious about, like what to have gratitude about. Because it would be really easy in this moment to choose grumpiness and and being unhappy over gratitude. Right. Because I'm I've kind of taken on a project that is fascinating and difficult and complicated and awful and sad and also a wonderful opportunity to love the world. Right. So it's it's all of those things. And sometimes when I'm mired in the awful and the gross, I have to remind myself consciously to look for the opportunity. I will tell you that when someone says to me, the dog is fine with strangers, the dog is fine with me taking a bone away from him, he's fine with the kids, he's fine at the dog park, that the dog is not fine. The dog is not good. No, no, the dog is not fine at all. I mean, he might be fine, but fine is not good. As you said, when you're saying fine, what that's telling me is the dog has not lost his marbles yet. And that if we continue down this vein, if he gets too exposed, like if it's just a short exposure to, to strangers, we may stay fine. But if he gets bombarded with strangers all day long, or if we spend way too long at the dog park, things are going to rapidly go from fine to not fine at all. And so fine is just not where I want to see a dog lying. And so, I mean, really a good behavior professional is going to dig into that a little bit. It's not an interrogation. We're just curious, right? I don't want to miss something important. So what I would say is in general, like for Skillet's family, right? They were like, we want the jumping up to stop. We want the mouthing to stop. We want to make leash walking more polite. We want Skillet to come when called, even though we haven't, he doesn't really know his name yet. I want him to stop being hypervigilant. I want him to, I want him to like strangers <laughs> and, I, and, and I want him to enjoy the dog park. So, so sometimes I think I unintentionally frustrate a family because that is not training that is a lot of behavior to me, right? Like, why is the jumping up happening? It it generally will happen for one of three reasons. It will happen for a dog doing attention seeking, right? A dog being overstimulated and overwhelmed. And it is the it is a defensive mechanism. Like, I'm going to jump up on you so you leave me alone. There is also comfort seeking. Yes. I was going to say, right? it depends. People are like, I'm like, well, how does he jump on you? What, what do you mean? I said, well, there's different ways of jumping up on you. If we come over and I just jump up very gently and put my paws on your lap and lean into you, that's comfort seeking. That's very different than the dog who uses me like a backboard and pounces off of me, you know, jumps up and boom, pushes off again, which is really uncomfortable for me. And sometimes I think dogs do that as a preemptive strike. Like, I know you're going to come over and pat me on the head and I don't like that. So, boom, I'm going to make you back off by pouncing off of you like you're a basketball backboard. Right. So, for example, we have a, a dog in class who takes treats really, really hard. It is not safe and it is not appropriate. And they've done all kind of the typical things people do to eliminate that behavior. When I started digging into it a little bit. It all starts with hands near the face. And she's really concerned if you try to touch her head or her collar. 
I was like, oh, well, that looks like that's interesting. So as soon as we started conditioning that reach, all of a sudden, the snappiness with the food went away, right? So that was an example of we've been focused on the wrong problem, right? It, she's not really a shark about taking treats. She's worried about that close in handling as a young adolescent dog. Right. right? So if so, I snark at you, you won't come near my head. Well, and I did ask the question, like, is it possible at any time that when she was misbehaving, someone took her by the collar and marched her somewhere? And she's like, oh, yeah, that's totally happened in our house. Right. And honestly, that happens in my house, too. Like Dovey this morning was like, I'm not going to my crate. I'm like, you are. I love you. You're going in. Right. I didn't handle him harshly, but I was insistent. <laughs> like, sorry, dude, like you're going to do what I asked you to do. There's going to be a reward for that, but you're going to like, I love you. You're going to do it. This is this is every day. This is what we do every day. Just do the thing. And I'll warm him up on it later and put that in my training notes of like, OK, work on in and out of the crate a few times. He just he likes to come up with creative ways to be funny and a little resistant because he's a teenager. So what I would say is I think sometimes I frustrate families a little bit in that they're like, I just want the jumping up to stop. And I'm digging into why the jumping up is happening. What I would say is that that that's not being done by a behavior professional to frustrate you. It's actually the most efficient way to get to a solution because the behavior is not happening in a vacuum. It is a response to something. It can be a lack of understanding. It can be being overwhelmed. It can be a negative history that you are completely unaware of. It can be inexperience. It can be a physical problem. It can be a vision problem. It could be all sorts of stuff. But pulling it apart and getting curious about it and solving the underlying causation often gets you to not jumping up much more quickly, even though we're not doing what everybody, you know, necessarily thinks they should do to work on jumping up. So going to causation can be really, really helpful. Like I understand that the Dovey's resistance to going in the crate today was about that he he wants us to play with him and interact with him more. So by being a little bit resistant, he's like, ha, ha, ha. That means she's going to play a game with me for five minutes. I'm on to him on that. So I was like, okay, I yes, I'm going to play the game with him, but we're not going to do it now, or I'm creating a new and different situation that I don't want. Basically saying, okay, I resist, we play, then I go in the crate. I have this right. new behavior change. Right. No, I get that. Right. Um, like my grand dog, Rosie, who's a little Aussie, whenever she sees me, it's it's like she levitates. She just gets so excited to see grandma. She just, she leaps into the air, leaps in the air, leaps in the air because she's so excited to see me. And she jumps when other people too. But I mean, when she sees me, she just goes ballistic. So one of the things I've started to do is like, is just, you know, I don't talk to Rosie until we have all four on the floor. I know for her, it's part, I mean, Rosie's only, what, seven months old, seven, eight months old, so she's still pretty young. But it's one of those things where I know that she's just excited to see me because we had developed this pattern that when I babysat for her, we play and we go for walks and we do all kinds of fun things, so she loves to see her grandma. But now it's like, okay, she's on the other side of the gate and I just don't, I don't open the gate. I don't go in and see her. I don't talk to her. We get four paws on the floor. Then you will get my attention. So in that particular case, just she's attention seeking. It's like, I love my grandma and I can't stand it that she's not in here talking to me. So what I wanted to understand is that how do I get grandma to come through the gate? I get grandma to come through the gate by being a calm dog with four paws on the floor. And that will hopefully over time work for, for Rosie. But, you know, for a dog that's doing it like because, you know, like uh, because I want you to back up, maybe you might do something similar, but it's more like instead of going over the dog's head, you put your hand down so the dog can sniff your hand and you scratch him under the chin. That may help to prevent that that preemptive jumping on you. So it's how you approach the dog is going to make a big difference in the solution to that particular problem. So this sweet little lab that I was talking about, who's really sharky with treats, I just free shaped a chin rest without treats. Like I use treats as reinforcement, but I did not lure it because like, again, she's 
it's a little bit like feeding a velociraptor. And so by teaching her the chin rest and then teaching her a marker cue that I'm going to deliver the treat right into her mouth, it was like in, um, it's not hyperbole and I am prone to hyperbole, but in five minutes, we had a completely different response about taking food, about reaching for her head and her collar. Like all of a sudden she had a way to say, yes, I I'm ready and I consent or she could back her head away and say, I'm not ready. And we honored that. And all of a sudden the sharkiness went away. Sharkiness that they've been dealing with for eight months. Right. And that's, and it hurts. I mean, it really hurts when a dog grabs your face. They kept escalating. Understandably, they were kind of escalating their response to her. They weren't being ugly to her, but they were like, stop it. No, don't do, you know, they were doing all the things of like, hey, you're hurting me. She escalated in response because you're not listening to me. Then I will probably have to escalate my response to you so that maybe then you'll understand what I don't like. And then you ask, so it's just a matter of miscommunication and escalation. And that doesn't help anybody. Right. So when I'm looking at this information of a a description of skillet, I'm like, okay, can you talk to me more about in what situations is skillet jumping up? What happens just before the jumping up? Right. Because that tells me, is it Kids are blasting through the door from school and Skillet's loose in the house, even though he's only lived there a couple of months and they don't really know him all that well. And he doesn't come when called. Like now that's a hazard about the front door, right? It's also hazardous to the kids. Nobody likes having a lab cross tackling them at the door, even if it is enthusiastic tackling, right? So again, like, I'm like, okay, well, when does the mouthing happen? Like, under what circumstances? Like, does he just randomly walk over and put your forearm in his mouth? Or is it you're trying to put his leash on him and he's chewing on your hands? Is it you're trying to put his food bowl down and he's grabbing your arm? Right? Is it he's chewing on a toy and he puts it in your hand and then he's mouthing your hand in your mouth, your arm? Like, explain to me when that's happening, right? For leash walking, I would be like, where is the moment that he loses his marbles? Right, because that's where you need to start. <laughs> and and then I'm like, okay, does he walk on your left or your right? And they're like, uh, and I'm like, right. So we're going to teach one. We can teach both, but we're going to teach one and then we're going to teach the other. And if he can't do it in the hallway when nobody else is home, he cannot go for a walk around the block with the leaves falling and the inflatables and kids riding bikes. It's like you went from, from playing chopsticks on the piano to now you're at... Carnegie Hall. Giant concert. Right, you're at Carnegie Hall. That's a little, it's a little bit of a bigger ask. Like you might want to give him some steps between those two, right? For coming when called, I test, does the dog respond at all differently between me saying something like refrigerator in a sing-song voice and their name? Because often you would be stunned how many times dogs don't know their name. You know what I did? I did a little experiment the other day. Because when Zuzu came to me, she had two other names. Her name was Maida and Sweet Pea, and uh, for a variety of reasons. And I was not overly fond of either one, so I changed her name to Zuzu. So the other day, she was, she's right here by my side. She was sitting around, she was doing, just gazing off. And so I said, Maida, and she didn't look. And I said, Sweet Pea, and she didn't look. I said, Zuzu, and she whipped her head around. And I just did that. Zuzu didn't stir. Clementine looked at me. So um, anyway, so, you know, but I don't know when that switch happened because I haven't used her name or the other two names for years. I don't know when the switch happened, but I know that it did. So give your dog a chance to learn its name. Well, and, and if they don't, just reclaim it, right? Like, so Mr. is a good example. Mr.'s name gets worn out because he's... he's a little bit naughty. And so every day, like 10 or 12 repetitions, I say his name and he gets paid for that. Just doing that three days in a row, you get a dog who, when you say his name, he doesn't ignore you. He turns and looks at you and wags his tail. Right. So moms out there or dads out there, imagine if every time somebody said mom, they gave you something you liked, (laughs) right? You would stop pretending you didn't hear the call right away. Right. We do the same thing with kids. Like only we do it in the opposite, right? We come up with a dreaded middle name and that means we're serious. Well, you could just teach Gregory 
that when you say Gregory, he gets, you know, a, a grape that he likes and little Gregory will start responding to his name faster. Like it's just, you just make it worth their while. My favorite is when you're out at the grocery store, you're somewhere and you hear this mom and all the women go, what? Right. Y'all get whiplash. Right. So for coming when called, first I'm going to test does the dog know his name? And then I'm going to ask more questions about that hypervigilance because now I'm starting to wonder like, okay, does this dog have really high prey drive? And he's really fixated on squirrels. And so he doesn't come when called because he doesn't hear you. He sees squirrels. And so it's really easy to, again, use, look at that, start teaching the dog. Like you can look at all those things, but we're not going to go investigate them. And then practice like, hey, could you respond to your name even when you're outside? That might mean taking venison with you, right? Saying he's shy around strangers, I would start pulling apart like which strangers, right? Is it people on the block? Is it vet staff? Is it people who are coming in your house? It, like when is that happening? And does he need to meet those people? Like maybe he's a little introverted. Well, a couple of things like you also too, you might be able to, to tie down like he's fine with women, but he doesn't like tall men. Okay. This is good to know. So that maybe when you're out walking and you see a tall man coming, lots of treats happen. Not because you're going to have him meet the man, but because passing a tall man should not be an anxiety-driven you know, experience for him. Well, and I had a sticky wicket recently where I had somebody who wants their dog to be bomb-proof walking past dogs in their neighborhood behind a fence who she knows have killed other dogs. Like, pulled dogs through the fence and killed them. And I'm like... I personally, my personal ethics are, I do not teach a dog that something that is actually dangerous isn't. Like, I don't lie to them about it. So we have uh, dogs who live next door who have pulled a dog through the fence before I observed that happen. My dogs are taught to acknowledge those dogs, but not to approach them and not to interact with them right? We don't, we don't bark at those dogs. You pay attention to me. I'll help keep you safe. We're not going near the fence. I do think it's important to, to recognize that a, a dog may not be reactive on a walk if, the, if another dog who is seriously menacing wasn't menacing, right? They should be concerned. You and I would be concerned about some neighbor brandishing a knife in their front yard, threatening us, it would be inappropriate for me to go, no, 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 Julie, that's just Bob. He just does that on Thursdays. Like, that's not okay. Which it may be Bob doing that on Thursdays. It's still not okay. <laughs> it's still not okay. Like, Bob's got a little something, something going on. And I will say with the shot collar fencing systems, I see more and more dogs menacing other dogs on a walk, understandably, Right. They make bad things happen, and so the dogs start to build a negative response sometimes. So sometimes I say to people, like, walking, like, you can't walk that direction in your neighborhood. You have to walk the other way. Because asking your dog to walk past a dog who is quite literally threatening bodily harm and to just be cavalier and act like that's not a problem is is not in my opinion, I'm sure somebody will argue, but in my opinion, that's not safe or kind to your dog. Now, I have totally retrained those other dogs with permission of their owner to be like, hey, when I'm walking, don't menace. <laughs> but that would be me approaching an owner, making sure those dogs aren't allergic to anything, making sure I have their consent and permission, which we did with our neighbor dogs. So now at least they they don't try to drag Christopher through the fence when he's mowing the grass. So now they wag their tails and watch him. But again, like there's a little bit of like, where do you, where do you begin? And I, I do think there are a lot of people who go and get a new dog and bring them home and just turn them loose and go, congratulations, these are your new digs. And then they start making a list of things the dog's doing wrong, but the dog was never really got an orientation. And my experience is an orientation to your home takes 18 months. Okay. Okay. And that's good to know. Yeah. There is an internet thing that goes around. That's like, you know, three days, three weeks, three months. Yeah. That's not nearly long enough. Not really. Not really. It, in my experience, it really takes 18 months. I, I was thinking that, that people also think too, I picked up this dog and he loves me. Or I love him, so I'm going to do something really nice for him. And, and this happened to me, uh, somebody. 
after picking it up at the pound, they took it right to the dog park and threw the dog in with all kinds of other dogs. And they had problems after that. And I said, well, um, just for future reference, the dog doesn't know it can trust you to keep it safe in the dog park. So maybe it would have been a better idea to take the dog home do some bonding and, you know, the dog park can be somewhere down the line. So I think one of the things to remember is, is not only do you need to orient your dog to its new life and its new home, don't throw too many new things in during this process because the dog still needs to understand that you are trustworthy and will take care of it. So be careful about how many new things you introduce at any given time, especially one that can be as unpredictable as a dog park. If, if your dog doesn't come when called every single time, no matter what, they, they're not ready for the dog park. They're not ready for the dog park because you can't save them if there's an emergency. Right, right. If your dog can't walk nicely on a leash that has slack in it, the, and and can't disengage from the environment and check in with you when you're like, hey, how is this for you? They're not really ready for a walk yet. It doesn't mean they're never going to be ready. It just means not not yet. Not yet is not the same as so ever. If, yeah. So, for example, I'm I'm teaching a young adult how to do dishes, right? And so when I went and saw him yesterday, he was like, hey the food containers that you you brought us soup in aren't really clean, but I washed them, right? So I was like, oh, okay, we have a miscommunication. He, he thinks rubbing the sponge over it with warm water and some soap is done. And my definition of washing dishes is getting them clean. And, and sometimes that takes more than one swing at it, right? I made stuff in the crock pot the other day that baked on and I had to wash that crock four times before it finally really got clean. And so he and I had a little bit of a conversation about how he's doing dishes and that I'll just do a tutorial for him when I come, right? And that the goal isn't that we run water and soap over the dishes. The goal is that the dishes are clean and ready to be used the next time, right? And that sometimes that means washing them more than once. You can try one thing, right? If that doesn't work, either we need to modify that, do it again, or we need to try something new, or we need to, to work up to it. I think that, that the analogy is is very much like, you know, just one and done is not necessarily going to work with your dog. And this one may not be the one that's, that's going to do it. So I, I, I love that idea that sometimes you just have to repeat it, or you have to do it a little more intensely, or you have to reinforce it more, you know, better. Maybe it's exactly what you need to do, but the reinforcement wasn't worth it for the dog. So you need to up the reinforcement or the reward in order to make it worthwhile for him to do what you want him to do. So I kind of just look at, okay, what are the most important things to start with? And then what's the next layer and what's the next layer until three years down the road, you have a dog who hopefully is just about perfect for your family and knows all the things, right? Our kids don't learn the ABCs the first six times we sing them. Our dog is not going to naturally know how to walk on a leash. That's a really big ask. That takes a tremendous amount of work. I will tell you, teaching really great polite leash walking, informal leash, leash skills takes about two years. Right. I, I would agree with you. I would agree. But, is, but, but if people have an understanding about how long it's going to take, then we have a better chance of it actually being successful. So, all right. Well, Tina, I think that that was a great little episode. I think we were able to cover in detail some of the things that we look at when we're doing a behavior modification program that is not just about behavior modification. It's about taking a holistic approach to your dog and helping you support your dog on three different levels. You know, on, on building confidence in the dog through some, some training by working to change behaviors with positive reinforcement in behavior modification and looking at husbandry issues that may exacerbate the condition. So with those three things in mind, know that the behavior modification is rarely um, something that you can achieve within, um, you know, 24 hours, that it's not an instantaneous repair. Some things go quicker than others, but having a plan about moving forward is what's going to get you 
to your desired end. With that in mind, we did a podcast on electric fences that I'm going to include in the show notes, as well as I just found a a great article from a past issue of Whole Dog Journal on teaching leave it without the cue so your dog learns to walk with, so that the distractions of seeing another dog, I look at another dog, I turn back and look at you. It's a nice little article that goes nicely, dovetails quite nicely with your park and pay. So I was going to post that one up there. So, and I will also post for park and pay too, if you'd like me to do that. Sure. I'm happy to do that. Well, thanks for spending part of your morning with me. Hey, it was fun. Now I get to go finish making dog food. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.